Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Today on History 605, we have two guests, and we're going to talk about um, a series of books about South Dakota's political tradition, or more appropriately, the book entitled The Plains Political Tradition, Volume 4, which is just out from South Dakota State Historical Society Press. Uh, with me today is John Lauk, a longtime political historian of the state and of the Midwest, and Tony Van Heusen, um, longtime political operative of the state and uh, uh, probably not of the Midwest, but of the state and currently candidate. Uh, but more importantly for our purposes here, one of the authors of uh, an article uh, in the book of the Plains Political Tradition. But um, good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks, neighbor. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, the, the three of us have known each other for a while, and uh, one of the ways that uh, we've come in uh, contact, though, was uh, actually when we didn't know each other, was the gentleman who, for whom this book is dedicated, uh, Professor John Miller. It turns out that all three of us uh, are Jackrabbit alumni and history majors at, at South Dakota State and had Professor Miller as a professor of ours. So, um, I was, uh, just as a way of background, though, we, did, we were not at state at the same time. I'm the oldest of the three of us, and I uh, graduated in 89, and then I think, John, you arrived the next spring. That... That's right, and I doubt any of us would have as deep an interest in history if it wasn't for John Miller, who uh, we all came to know very well. Right. I got to SDSU in the fall of 1989, and immediately... Um, got to know John Miller because he was the guru of uh, regional and state history and was just a very engaging lecturer. Mm -hmm. And if you had any interest in history at all, you'd be drawn in by uh, the spell of John Miller. And Tony, you you uh, showed up from Armour and went to SDSU starting when? That's right. I started in 2001. Okay. And uh, uh was recruited there for political science, so Dr. Bob Burns was my sure. political science advisor, and then I decided to do history also. I really have an interest in that, and uh, John was assigned to me to be my advisor, very fortunate with both advisors, kind of the leading guys in their field at that right. time. And, right. uh, yeah, John, uh, like like John Lauk just said, he he, uh, he cast the spell. He had a lot of interest in DeSmet, which I did too. My mom is from there. Of course, Ben, That's you're, right. you're also from DeSmet, I yeah. know, and... And uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder and, and uh, mm -hmm. interest in the La Follettes in Wisconsin and the progressive politics. But, yeah, I think I took 
the first just introduction to history from him and then a couple other classes too. And then he retired probably after my sophomore year and okay. this guy next to me replaced him. So That's right. So yeah. John, yeah. Another side note, I was watching um, Field of Dreams the other night was on one of the cable channels and prior to getting to SDSU and taking classes from John Miller, I'd never heard of the Chicago Black Sox scandal of 1919. Uh-huh. Shoeless Joe Jackson. And this is the basis of Field of Dreams and and the book by the novelist that became the movie. Right. But I can still remember as a freshman, my first semester at SDSU, John Miller explaining the Chicago Black Sox scandal in his course, American History Between the Wars. And he would get down on one knee like that little paper boy, and look up at Shoeless Joe and say, say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. <laughs> That's right. It's one of my mo- clearest memories he, of John He did Miller. that in class? It, oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's what, six foot five? He's a tall guy, so to right. get down on his knees is kind of a striking thing for a student to see. That's, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I had him for methods as well as the uh, second half of U.S. history. Um, I remember him talk, speaking... Uh, a lot about the La Follettes and the yeah. political uh, machine in Wisconsin and so forth. And, of course, he, he had lived around the Midwest. And then when I came back to South Dakota, I met him at a function at SDSU at the Art Museum there. And uh, he, he was talking about his latest book and how he had, he had kept working on uh, stuff and into Smid and down Highway 14 and right. uh, his book on, the, on the, the stretch of towns along Highway 14 in South Dakota is still a classic thing to have. You mentioned John Miller's Methods and Philosophy of History class. Mm -hmm. Any history major at SDSU had to take this course, and it was about how to do history. That's right. And I bet that course has generated more articles for the Journal South Dakota History and later research projects than Mm -hmm. any other class in the state's history, you know, pound for pound. Right. I still remember my topic was the history of the SDSU-USD rivalry. In which oh. I interviewed 40 people about all the crazy antics that went on between the schools during games about frozen bunnies being thrown onto the floor. <laughs> and it was great. John Miller loved it. Yeah. Yeah. See, I lost out. I had to take that class from Love. <laughs> <laughs> what was your topic? Do you remember? I think it was Why is West River so Republican? <laughs> Oh, I think oh. it was. Well, that's an article in one of the yeah. well, then, previous editions. Say Nathan Sanderson Nathan later Sanderson. wrote a longer article about that. And, right, right. Yeah. He yeah. did. Right. And the reason we, we recruited him is Nathan Sanderson wrote a book on um, Ed Lemon, Ed Lemon right. the right. famous cattleman from out west. Mm-hmm. And he used all that work and research to, uh, to develop this story about the political history of West River. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that, that book is... Uh, also published by South Dakota Historical Society Press. So, uh, well, John, I was wondering is, in your introduction after the dedication to Professor Miller, you you mentioned how this kind of effort got started, and you wrote an article along with Professor Miller and a gentleman by the name of Ed Hogan uh, called "The Contours of South Dakota Political Culture." And I was wondering uh, when you wrote that. That was published in two thousand four, I think. Um, so, what what were the statements that you made there that after four volumes now of, of this uh, Plains political tradition are holding true and what might be kind of a shaky argument to make these days after all this? Well, I should say that that article uh, became the basis of this entire book series that we're talking about. And the reason the article came about 
is that I was sitting in my office at SDSU um, where I was uh, teaching history and had replaced John Miller after he retired. He retired a few years early because he just wanted to write and research full time. He was a uh, dedicated scholar. He uh, became a professor because he wanted to write books. And Mm -hmm. so as soon as he could retire, he did and went to work on other research projects. But he was still around Brookings, and he frequently stopped by my office. And one day he stopped by, and I had just been on the phone with uh, the New York Times, who had called out of the blue because they were going to write a story about the big Senate race in South Dakota in 2004. And they wanted to describe in a nutshell— what South Dakota's politics was. Mm -hmm. Now, today, it's much easier to just say, well, South Dakota's a red state. But at various times, South Dakota turns a little purple. Mm -hmm. During the Great Depression, of course, we had Democratic governors, et cetera. So it's a little more complicated of an answer back then. And at that time, our whole congressional delegation was Democrat. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I told the reporter, I gave her a couple of lines. It was Cheryl Gay Stolberg, who went on to be White House reporter and um, still is a national reporter for the Times. But soon after that call, John Miller stopped in and I told him this story. And I said, you know, we need a better answer for this question when people call. Mm -hmm. I mean, how are we going to describe the state? And so we immediately went to work, had a bunch of meetings, outlined some ideas and... uh, I suggested a good way to put a label on this is to describe South Dakota's politics as defined by agrarian conservatism, meaning a generalized conservatism. I mean, we're not a radical state by any means, Mm -hmm. but there are periods of time where uh, Democrats can be successful. And if you look back in our history, those periods of time have been periods of extreme agricultural distress. So the 1890s uh, under populism, of course, the 1930s under the Great Depression. And even that moment we were talking about uh, with the New York Times when the delegation was completely Democrat, that was really a product of the 1980s farm crisis. That's how um, Tom Daschle and Tim Johnson made it into office to begin with. You know, Mm -hmm. absent the farm crisis, Mm -hmm. that likely would not have been the case. So we built our argument around that and, you know, gave it some texture and nuance and described some of the major players and described some of the themes of populism that Mm -hmm. you could see at work in in figures uh, like uh, Andrew Lee or Bill Janklow, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's held up pretty well uh, over time. Well, um, we'll uh, then move on to how um, how are these articles put together? How do you uh, over the time of the of the four series and uh, for this one in particular, um, how do you uh, draft people and or or inspire people to write the, the contribute contributing articles? Well, I should answer the the first question here. I didn't really finish, but so we did that article. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of reaction to it. Um, so we decided let's have a panel about it somewhere and have people respond. Okay. And then all those responses were published in your journal, South Dakota History, the History Quarterly for South Dakota. Uh-huh. 
And then we said, well, this generated so much interest, maybe we should turn this into a book. Okay. So we put together a call for proposals and sent it around. And we ended up getting, I think, 12 or 14 chapters for that first volume of this series. Yeah. And interestingly enough, we launched that book in Mitchell at the McGovern Center at okay. Dakota Wesleyan okay. University because George McGovern was still alive then. Mm -hmm. And actually, John Miller and I went over to talk to uh, George McGovern a couple of times. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, unlike some polit political figures who, you know, aren't that interested in history, of course, George McGovern was a PhD in history, right. uh, earned his PhD at Northwestern under Ray Allen Billington, the famous oh, historian wow. of the American West. And, uh, but at that point, uh, McGovern had moved back to Mitchell. Um, I don't think it's any big secret for many years after his defeat in 1980, he wasn't too enthused about spending time in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. But he kind of made peace with the state, came home at that point and was living in Mitchell across the street from Dakota Wesleyan. And so John Miller and I talked to him a lot about okay. some of the very f famous moments he was involved in. Mm -hmm. um, of course, most importantly being the 1972 nominee. And um, because of that connection, we decided to launch Volume 1 okay. at the McGovern Center. Okay. And George spoke. He took us Wonderful. all out to dinner at uh, Chef Louis afterwards, the famous restaurant in Mitchell. Mm -hmm. and, um, Which is gone now, too, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. tragic. Yeah. I just I heard that. But it, it became a, a popular series, and so we kept it going mm -hmm. through, through four volumes. Okay. Um, well, and then uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here, and I wanted to get to some of these things. We've had Sean Flynn on the on the um, program before to talk about Ben Rifle, but in this book he talks about Carl Munt, a perennial, probably uh, maybe in more in some ways more profound of an impact uh, Munt's career on South Dakota than than even George McGovern, perhaps in some ways. Um, what what does uh, Professor Flynn at Dakota Wesleyan uh, find with with the Munt piece? Well, George or uh, Carl Munt, unfortunately, is really a forgotten figure. Not many contemporaries uh, remember him, mm -hmm. but he was a major force in South Dakota politics. He held office for 34 years, uh, was a four-term senator, uh, was known as King Carl back in the day because yeah. he pulled the strings in, in the Republican Party. Uh, he was close to Nixon through mm -hmm. all those years when Nixon was in the Senate and vice president and then president. Uh, it's quite was, a story. He was even able to get Nixon to come to South Dakota as, as was. President Nixon in 69 and visit Politics. Munt's uh, former employer, uh, what it, today, what is Dakota State University. Right. Carl Munt started as a speech professor at Dakota State, mm -hmm. um, which was then General Beadle State Teachers College, right. which General Beadle has a chapter in this mm -hmm. book, too, I think we should talk about. Yeah. But yeah, Carl Munt uh, was very close to Nixon early on and made a request when Nixon became president in early 1969, I would really like for you to come to South Dakota. They're building the Munt Library mm -hmm. at General Beadle, or now Dakota State, and I would love for you to be there. And in the White House, among Nixon's circle of advisors, they had been looking for a location to give a particular speech. 
And this speech was about the problem of campus radicalism. And, of course, what they had in mind was Berkeley and Columbia and Madison, Wisconsin, where there was a lot of violence and bombings and marches, et cetera. And this was a great issue for Nixon. He wanted to denounce these campus radicals. But um, they wanted the right setting for this. And all of a sudden, all these forces came together, and they're like, well, Carl Munt has this request for Nixon to come to Dakota State. Why don't we do it there? Probably a little less radical campus. (laughs) And it's a very funny story. There's a great uh, long piece in the New York Times Magazine from 1969 where they're describing this meeting in the White House. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan then was in the Nixon cabinet. This is before Mm -hmm. he went to the Senate. And someone is going through these uh, ideas and says, well, we should send President Nixon out to General Beadle State Teachers College. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan (laughs) says... Good God, where's that? <laughs> and he's quoted in the in the magazine piece. It's a very funny story. Yeah. Well, and and uh, so what what's the relationship here? I mean, the the his case is is the Flynn article. Yeah. And uh, this is kind of how Munt, you know, notches his political reputation in anti communism and Nixon too. They're yeah. they're uh, fellows in this effort. Uh, what's the re- What's the discoveries that uh, that uh, Flynn comes up with in about mm-hmm. Munt? Well, Alger Hiss was this uh, prominent Washington figure, part of the permanent aristocracy of Washington. Mm-hmm. And um, he was accused in the 1940s or early 50s of being a communist. Right. A spy. This, a spy. Yeah. And this became a huge um, cause celeb for people on the right and left. And everyone, you know, most of the establishment and most of the people on the left uh, swore that Hiss was innocent and this is a mean smear by McCarthy and Nixon and uh, Munt, et cetera. Um, But it made Carl Munt a household name in 1950s America. People Mm -hmm. knew him because he ran these hearings uh, in the Senate. So he was the chair of the House on American Activities Committee? Or he, he was a member? Uh, he was definitely a member. I don't think he was then chair. Then he goes to the Senate. Is, I think, I think M- Martin Dyes was chair. But, okay. But he was very active. And yeah. he was a speech professor. And right. He was very theatrical. And, and that's what really comes through in the article is they really were kind of coming at this, oh, here's this Midwestern rube, and he's a simpleton, and uh-huh. we're the you know, white shoe establishment guys. And he kind of got the better of him, I think. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I mean, to make a long, long story short, in the end... Um, Elger Hiss was found guilty. Yeah, and he was a spy. He was clearly guilty of sin. Mm-hmm. And uh, as much as people hated to admit it, uh, Nixon and Munt were right about this. Mm-hmm. I think when they opened the Soviet archives up, don't we know that from their side now too? Yes. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. There was a book. This is when I first started working in the Munt archives, probably with John Miller okay. uh, back in the 80s and 90s. There was a book um, researched by Alan Weinstein, who was a prominent writer and academic in the 70s and 80s. And he set out to prove that Alger Hiss was innocent. Okay. And, and he went down this trail for like 15 years, spent a lot of time in Madison going through the Munt papers mm-hmm. and did a very thorough job. And in the end, he said, 
oops, he is guilty. <laughs> and that was kind of the well, first yeah. nail in the coffin. Yeah, and then when the yeah. Soviet archives opened it That out. was the last nail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you, you had mentioned uh, we ought to talk about Beetle and so forth. I had uh, Professor Blessinger on the show, and we kind of previewed that article a little bit. But uh, for those who may have missed it or, or uh, haven't yet dialed back to, I think it's episode seven or eight from the first season of uh, History 605, um, Beetle is really a founding, he, he puts a founding imprint on the state. Um, but Justin is able to dig up some stuff that I had never heard. Uh, it really kind of mm -hmm. sets the tone for where Beetle is coming from in so many ways. So I wonder if you could... It's well, surprising because he was almost the major figure of the first, the territorial and the first era of statehood in South Dakota. I mean, he's our statue in Statuary Hall in D.C. Right. We have a copy of that statue in the state capitol, and he's this revered figure, and it seems like he was holding back on people. I mean, it's surprising right. that some of this hasn't been known until now. Right. We talked about. And this comes back to Nixon and Munt again in 1969, where they went to speak was General Beadle State Teachers College. That yeah. was named after General yeah. Beadle. Yeah. A copy of that same statue on that campus. Yes, too. there is. Yeah. yeah. But to tie a couple of these chapters together, the first chapter... I think is very important to read because Greg Rose at Ohio State Marion yeah. explains who these people were who came into South Dakota and created the state in the 1870s and 1880s. Mm -hmm. And um, to simplify this a great deal, most of them were Midwesterners. Yeah. And that would have included General Beadle. Right. And the reason he was a general was that he served in the Civil War and served proudly and even before being in the Civil War, he was an ardent abolitionist. And this right. is why he was very enthused to fight for the Union mm -hmm. and the Union cause. And, and he was representative of a big group of people from the Midwest who fought in the war. And then when the, once the war's over and they're young men and they want to have a farm, mm -hmm. they move to the frontier at that point, which was Dakota Territory. Right. And they get their farms. And... These men who were uh, veterans of the Civil War, of the Union cause, became the founders of the state. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who became governor. I mean, Arthur Millette, Millette. was the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they were the ones who went to the constitutional conventions and made up the early legislatures. And, you know, there's a bigger Midwestern story here in the sense that in the 1850s, the Republican Party emerges in the Midwest, mm -hmm. founded in Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, takes off amazingly fast, mm -hmm. becomes a national party, elects Lincoln a mm -hmm. few years later. And that's what triggers the Civil War. So the Republican Party becomes the dominant force in the Midwest and that's where all these people come from who settle in South Dakota okay. with the Civil War memories very vivid in their sure. minds. And there's been some good work in recent years about these Civil War veterans mm -hmm. who founded South Dakota and created towns like Gettysburg yeah. and named counties like, like Lincoln, Lincoln. Grand, where Union. Professor Union. Jones and I live in yeah. Lincoln County. Yeah. So there's a backstory to this, and it right. explains the first half century of this state's political culture. Right. I mean, I think it's still – the echoes are still there, but yeah. it was much more pronounced early on. Right. 
Uh, see, I grew up in Douglas County, which was a failed attempt to attract Democrats to the state. <laughs> named after Stephen Douglas. But oh, yeah. it is named after Stephen Douglas. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. I also... The Little Giant. Douglas County is also the Little Giant. Oh, yes. Well, isn't Armour named after the meatpacking company because they were trying yeah. to attract him to build right. a meatpacking plant and he was there? the chairman of the railroad, too. Okay. Yeah. Douglas was? Armour. Oh, Armour was. was the okay. Chair. Yeah. Okay. Douglas had passed away by the time they, they yes. named the county. That's I right. Suppose. So uh, I, I've often wondered this, too. I wonder what, what the Beatle and a lot of the Civil War veterans who founded the state think of the failure of Reconstruction what, by 1877, 1878. Is there any kind of thing that maybe rose or somebody else gets into about how they – because I wonder maybe there's a little – well, at the national level, we've uh, that's failing, the, the, the political deal of the – 1876, 1877 election and so forth, which is a real mess. Um, is there an effort to say, hey, in South Dakota we can do better? Or? I don't know. I've, I haven't run across that. That would be a great mm -hmm. question, though, like you know, 20 years after the war. What mm -hmm. are they thinking? My guess would be with General Beadle, he was pretty hardcore abolitionist yeah. and anti-South. Mm -hmm. So I would bet he would be in the camp of the radical Reconstructionists who wanted to keep fighting and didn't want to cut the deal of yeah. 1876, which ended it. But yeah. I don't know. That'd be great to... My, my father-in-law, who farms in 18, or in Lincoln County, um, has a letter from the homesteader who uh, first got the land in 1878, I think. Uh, he wrote to his brother and he said, come join me in Dakota Territory. And, oh, and by the way, vote for Grant. He was up for re-election. Vote for Grant, and we'll keep the Rebs down. <laughs> well, and that that gentleman uh, wound up in the first state legislature. Oh. Um, he was in the first state legislature, and and in the second Wisconsin Cavalry. So he's kind of prototypical of yeah of the type of person you're talking about. Well, I did a book on Dakota Territory a long time ago called Prairie Republic, mm -hmm. and I went through as many of the records as I could find and the speeches and what people were saying mm -hmm. in the 1880s in particular, this kind of key founding decade for South Dakota, and the references to the Civil War are ubiquitous. Okay. I mean, that's what was on their mind. Yeah. And keeping down the Rebs, very much a part of the rhetoric yeah. of early Dakota territory. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, Tony, you, your chapter is to deal with uh, somebody who's not a Republican, a, a, no. a Democrat. I think he was the first uh, Democrat to win the governor's chair. That's right. Um, tell us a little bit about William Bulow. How, yeah, does, well, how does he pull it off that, that election? Well, and if it's okay, I'd like to just share how I got sure. uh, involved with researching Bulow because it's an interesting story too. Sure, but, absolutely. Uh, uh, I've been for several years a board member of the Trail of Governors Project in right. here, which uh, now this year just finished putting up statues of every former governor around around the capital city. So uh, one thing that as board members we would do is when we had a new governor coming up to do the statue, we would try to identify family members who were still alive and contact them so they were aware. And sometimes they have material to contribute. Sometimes they want to contribute money. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bulow doesn't have any family left in South Dakota, but he has a granddaughter who lives in New Jersey. Okay. Who's in her 80s, I think. Uh, and so I was talking to this lady, and in the course of the conversation, she kind of offhandedly mentioned that uh, uh, that she had a copy of Bulow's autobiography. Yeah. Well, and I'd done a fair amount of research by this point on former governors, and I'd never heard of a Bulow autobiography. Mm -hmm. uh, so I asked her, you know, what is that? I'd like to see that. She said, well, after he... 
He left the U.S. Senate. He was governor for two terms, two two-year terms, and then senator for two six-year terms. Yeah. So he left office in 1943. He stayed in D.C. and he bought a typewriter and just sat down in his house and kind of tapped out his life story over the next two or three years. And she said she had maybe the only copy, maybe one of the only copies. Uh, I said, well, I'd sure like to see that if you could make a copy of that and send it to me. Well, she didn't make a copy. She just sent me the original. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, oh, yes. Okay. So that we have that of, in the archives now. Well, no, it was kind oh. of horrifying, but I took it up to the archives <laughs> and I had them scan it and make a copy of okay. it. And then okay. I mailed her her copy back. Okay. I didn't right. want to be responsible if yeah. this was the only copy. Right. Uh, but it was, uh, Bulow is a storyteller and a very funny guy. And it's a, it's a, can be kind of repetitive, but it's a, it's a fun thing to read. He grew up his education was pretty intermittent, and he spoke German at home. Uh-huh. So his spelling, punctuation are real all over the place. He's and some umlauts in there from time to time. Well, and yeah, it's just you know, <laughs> yeah. It if you read it out loud, it makes sense, but on the printed page, it's kind of a mess. And so I I put a fair amount of time into editing that just to kind of clean up the spelling and punctuation okay. and so okay. forth. And uh, South Dakota History Journal last spring published about twenty thousand word excerpt of that talking right. about his. Mostly his time as governor and bringing, you know, he was governor when Coolidge came to the state and Mount Rushmore started. And uh, he was the first Democratic governor, as you mentioned, really got elected in kind of the fallout from the end of the progressive era. Okay. Where you had Peter Norbeck and then his successor, McMaster, doing all these big state-run industries and programs. Right. And a lot of that collapsed and failed. Uh, and a very conservative Republican named Carl Gunderson from Mitchell was elected governor. Well, okay. Gunderson decided that he should really just go hard after Norbeck and blame Norbeck for all this, and he failed. Oh. Norbeck was a U.S. senator at this time, was still a very popular guy. Yeah. Well, the consequence of that was two years later, Gunderson goes to run for re-election. This would be in 1926. Every other Republican on the ballot wins. Except him. Except him. He gets beat by Bulow because the Norbeck progressives flipped over and voted for Bulow. Okay. So he's the first Democratic governor. He was a lawyer from Beersford. Grew up in Ohio. In fact, he wrote, writes in his story, he grew up just a couple miles from, uh, or he was born in a cabin a couple miles from where Grant was born. Oh. He talks about the fact that Grant's birthplace is now a major attraction and his is not, but they're right, <laughs> they're right down the road from each other. Yeah. Uh, but he gets to be the governor and is a conservative Democrat. Right. Uh, everybody in the Capitol is a Republican for the most part, but he vetoes the state budget because they're spending too much. Uh, uh, there was actually a Supreme Court case on if he's allowed to veto the state budget, which wow. they said he was. Yeah. So he does his two terms, and then he decides to run for U.S. Senate. And really, my article in this book is more about his time in the U.S. Senate. But okay. what, he gets to D.C. in 1931. 1932, FDR is elected president. People don't remember. Some people do. But Franklin Roosevelt, running for president, was talking about cutting the budget and saving money. And we need... Then, of yeah. course, he gets into office in the New Deal. He does the very opposite. Well, yeah. Bulow was on board with the cutting the budget FDR. He was not on board with the New Deal yeah. FDR. And as I'm editing his autobiography, it is just an endless. There's a couple chapters in there that are just lengthy, lengthy rants against Franklin Roosevelt okay. and the New Deal. But he was anti-New Deal. Yeah. He was one of the U.S. senators who helped kill the court packing plan in the uh, yeah. late 30s. And then he was an isolationist. Yes. So he was very opposed to... Yeah, he votes against Lend-Lease. He votes against Lend-Lease, and he was very opposed... He, he believed that Roosevelt was really maneuvering to get us into World War II all along prior to Pearl Harbor, and right. he makes that argument in his book, too. Okay. But 
very opposed to Andrew. I mean, once Pearl Harbor happened, like all those guys, he kind of begrudgingly supported it. But even then, he blamed Roosevelt for it. Okay. So 1942 comes along. Tom Barry ran against him in the primary. Because at this point, you're Bulow. You're an anti-New Deal, anti-World War II Democrat, kind of an untenable position. Yeah. So he got beat in the primary by Tom Barry, who lost the general. But Bulow writes in his book that he, he never lost a general election in South Dakota. And he, yeah. he believed that his conservative Democrat approach was something that could work in South Dakota and could win, and he was 4-0 in general elections. But, yeah. you know, the problem for him was it couldn't work in the Democratic Party by the 1940s because right. they were nominating somebody who was opposed to their entire platform. Right. So how does agrarian conservatism kind of fit with Bulow's efforts and, and philosophy? It, 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 well, it fits right in there? It fits right in there. In yeah. fact, we had a situation. He, he would have been our U.S. senator in the 30s when our other U.S. senator was Norbeck. I mean, we had an odd situation in 1936 where the progressive Republican Norbeck endorsed Franklin Roosevelt for re-election. Right. right. The conservative Democrat Bulow actually endorsed Landon. So, <laughs> oh, publicly endorsed the Republican from Kansas. Yes. Landon. Wow. So they they both crossed over to the other side. But yeah. that was the weird situation South Dakota had at that time was our, we had this progressive Republican party that was to the left of the Democrats. And that's, that realigned by the 40s, and that's what did yeah. Bulow in. Yeah. But it fits perfectly with this idea of agrarian conservatism because uh, to win, be successful in South Dakota, you kind of need to be a conservative Democrat if you're going to run as a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about McGovern earlier. When he first ran, he ran as a pro-farm policy or pro-farmer Democrat. Mm -hmm. He didn't run as a radical, no. 60s radical. Later on, when he sort of transitioned or more, was more public in his left-wing views, that's what did him in. Mm -hmm. So I think it all fits together very well. Hmm. Well, you know, there's another article in this book by Daryl Webb about... Yeah, I was going to go there next, so that's great. And uh, kind of, I, I really appreciated that article because he makes an argument that I'd never really heard before or thought about before, but he's really saying, you know, people portray Norbeck and that progressive movement as being a left-wing... Mm -hmm. movement, but in some ways it was at its core really a conservative movement because it's about, you know, an activist agenda to preserve the South Dakota way of life, right? right. Preserve the little guy, preserve right. the small farmer, protect us from outside interests, you know, the outdoors, conservationism. And I think that's a strain you see right up to the present day. I mean, you can see that with the McGovern Democrats and you can see that with Bill Janklow mm -hmm. and you can come right up to our current governor and see an, an yeah. element of that, that Preserving the South Dakota way of life is yeah. a very salient strain in our politics. Yeah, well, uh, Bill McClay, in his Land of Hope book, he makes that argument about um, the difference between, say, Theodore Roosevelt and Wilson. Uh, their mm -hmm. progressivism is kind of is uh, different shades based on that, that similar kind of line of thinking. Right. So uh, the, the printmaking book and uh, Ramdi Ramson, um, she kind of joins a previous guest we had on here, about the uh, German newspapers and so forth. And this is kind of a, certainly another political subculture, that all these immigrants who arrive after and alongside, say, the Civil War veterans and so forth, the Germans, the Norwegians, the, the Danes, the Swedes, and settle in large populations. It's kind of amazing to think that a newspaper in 1910, German-language newspaper, has a subscription base of over 20,000 
uh, active subscriptions. It's quite amazing. Um, well, what's the political culture that's brought with these uh, immigrants? Well, a couple of the people we've talked about here today, Bulow, Governor Bulow, yeah. Senator Munt. Yeah. I mean, these are German immigrants mm -hmm. or from German immigrant families. Right. Um, South Dakota had one of the highest levels of uh, German immigrants in the entire nation, South Dakota, Wisconsin, North Dakota, mm -hmm. uh, Minnesota too, up by St. Cloud, Stearns County. I mean, that's kind of the German heartland and the Midwest in general is where mm -hmm. a lot of Germans moved. And this used to be a much more prominent, invisible part of the landscape. But of course, the two world wars kind of snuffed all that out. Where we're only two blocks or so from downtown Sioux Falls City Hall. That used to be an old building where they wrote the South Dakota Constitution in the 1880s, and it was called Germania Hall. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there used to be a lot of towns with German names and uh, a lot of other signs of uh, German activity and German immigrants, et cetera. But mm -hmm. of course, that gets shut down mm -hmm. during the World Wars. It's kind of, I think it's a big missing element of uh, South Dakota politics. You know, what happened to these groups? Where did they end up politically? Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at these German, heavy German counties, like McPherson and those up around Eureka, yeah. which I think is where Randy is uh, talking about those German language newspapers. Yeah. They're extremely conservative now. So McPherson County votes 80% Republican most of the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a long run lag effect of those German immigrants. But I'd like to know more about what happened in the several decades after they arrived. Because mm -hmm. if you're a German Protestant, you're going to be Republican. If you're a German Catholic, you're going to be uh, Democrat, almost uh, 100%. But we don't know as much about mm -hmm. that group because it's very hard to do research there because you have to speak German. Mm -hmm. You have to know a lot about 19th century history. You have to be have research skills as a historian, and you have to speak German. Mm -hmm. And that's a very narrow band of people. Right. Um, but we do need a lot more work on the German element here because mm -hmm. it, it was very big. Yeah. It'd also be handy to know what's the politics back in the home country. So some of the Germans come from what is today Germany. Some of them come from what is today Russia and Ukraine. Poland. Um, uh, Poland, right. Mm -hmm. There was kind of a diaspora that was in between coming to the uh, the Northern Plains. You know, and I was watching a show about Poland last night, and I said to my wife, "These people all look like my grandma's, you know, all my great aunts." Right. <laughs> <laughs> my grandma was Russian German. And okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I uh, when the when Russia invaded Ukraine last winter, there was a map that someone put on Twitter okay. of where the German colonies in Russia were located, and most of them were in Ukraine, mm -hmm. Odessa, close mm -hmm. to the Black Sea. Right. And these areas that are now part of Ukraine, uh, where uh, that's the place that all these Germans moved to in the 1700s and 1800s because the czar of Russia gave them this deal. If yeah. you farm these grounds and raise a lot of crops, because you're known to be great farmers, mm -hmm. we'll exempt you from military service. Right. When she pulled that exemption back... And they started to get drafted because a lot of them were, were pacifists, pacifists and yeah. Mennonites, et cetera. 
they decamped to the Midwest and the Great Plains, right. and a ton of them ended up in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. But th- this place in Ukraine that's under threat from the Russian army, that's where these people came from. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, a previous episode, The Oceans of Grain, we talked about that, that immigration path, and they, they not only brought their uh, political views and their traditions, they also brought their seed corn and their, their seeds for their wheat because they knew they were going to a place with good soil, and uh, they were going to try their, their farming here. Well, there were some very interesting politics with this back in the day. Like, Carl Munt first ran for Congress in 1936. He lost that race. He won the next term. But when he would campaign early on, he would go to German communities and speak in German, mm-hmm. campaign in German. Mm-hmm. And the Republican Party in the 1880s, 1890s would do outreach in Norwegian and German. So they would um, put out their brochures like, you should vote for our candidates mm-hmm. in Norwegian and German. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting ethnic politics. Yeah. Well, you're right. The World War is really – I mean, Norbeck was governor during – U.S. involvement in yeah. the First World War and, right. and signed the legislation that banned German language education in right. public schools because it was a right. anti-German measure. So. Yeah, and there was a famous case where a couple of Mennonites in South Dakota were arrested for not signing up for the draft, and they were sent to Leavenworth in Kansas, yes. and they died in prison. Oh my and there was a lot of. Um, rumors about were they killed or were they mistreated or mm-hmm. whatever. But it, it became a prominent court case. Mm. But, you know, after that, people's public exhibitions of their Germanness certainly declined. And that, w- that would be a great chapter, too. Yeah. I mean, what happened, compare 1914 to 1920. I mean, yeah. what happened to town names, et cetera? Yeah. Well, right. There, there was a uh, town... I grew up in Madison in Lake County, but in the next county, Minor, there was a town. It had, I think, some kind of German name. And during the war, they renamed, or just after the war, they renamed themselves Argonne after the American military victory in World War I. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Huh. Well, if there's ever two names you don't hear together, uh, it's Lyndon Baines Johnson and Francis Case. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that forms a chapter that Paul Higby writes for, for, the, for the book. I was wondering, uh, they're in the Senate at the same time? Um, their politics, what, is, what does Higby say about, were they friends? Were they uh, enemies? How did, their, how did their careers collide? Well, I think he uses that chapter to draw a contrast between ways of operating in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Francis Case became known as a roads and bridges senator. Yeah, He went there, he got on the infrastructure committee, and he just focused on the home front. Getting the dams built and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. And, of course, LBJ. And I should say, too, that Francis Case was known as a, uh, a very quiet, maybe dour, little, very soft-spoken. And, of course, those are words you would never use about LBJ. <laughs> LBJ went a different direction. Yeah. He was a Texan. He was big as life. He wanted to be leader. And if you got in his way, he was going to steamroll you. Yeah. So he uses that chapter to contrast uh, these two styles, two styles, you know, a kind of yeah. Texas pugnacious in your face style versus a more mild mannered um, Midwestern style mm-hmm. of Francis Case. I think Francis Case's family came from Iowa. 
They were in Mitchell for a while, but he ended up as a newspaper publisher in Hot Springs or out in West River. I think he was born in Iowa, and then, yeah, yeah, wound up in the Black Hills. And, of course, a a good Midwestern Methodist. Of course, he went to Dakota Mm -hmm. Wesleyan. Okay. And I'm pretty sure Francis Case's brother founded this organization called the Westerners. It's kind of like a rotary club, prominent in the western part of the country. Hmm. Um, But his brother became a very prominent person, too. Okay. Yeah. Francis Case, of course, uh, died suddenly when he was running for re-election in 1970, or 1962, mm-hmm. created a big mess for the Republicans because they had to immediately come up with a candidate. Well, he had just won the primary when he died. Uh-huh. So... So, so now there's a mess. So yeah. Archie yeah. Gubrud, governor, has to figure out what to do. Yeah. He was thinking of appointing a replacement or picking a replacement, but it got pretty messy. So he just said, let's just have an open convention of Republicans right. appear and you guys can sort this out. Right. And this becomes a real saga. Yeah. Many, many ballots. They end up with um, with Joe Biden. Joe Bottom is yeah. the candidate. Yeah. But and, it was quite a... This convention was held in the state house chamber. They used to let them use the state house chamber for party conventions. Oh. And I have the account of it that was written by professor from USD and it's interesting because he uh, he has firsthand accounts from a college student who was president at the convention Larry Pressler <laughs> so you have the reports from Larry Funny. Pressler but this field of candidates was yeah. Sigurd Anderson Joe Foss Ben uh, Rifle Ben Rifle EY Berry Joe Bottom ultimately won it but it was yeah. kind of the all-star roster of Republicans from that era all running in this right. one convention. It was right. a circus. Foss writes in his autobiography that Case died, and Foss is the commissioner of the AFL. Yeah. He's traveling at the time, and Goober gets a hold of him at a hotel in New York City and says, hey, Case is, Case is gone. I'd like to appoint you senator. And Foss says, well, let me check with the owners. i gotta get, I got to check on my contract if I can do that or not. <laughs> and he calls him back 24 hours later and says, Yep, I'll take the appointment. They'll release me from the contract. And he says, too late. i got to have a convention. <laughs> right. Well, so. th- this was a big deal because they, the Republicans were kind of disorganized, and there was this former congressman looming out there that was a threat and could cost the Republicans that Senate seat. And sure enough, George McGovern, mm-hmm. who— after losing in 1960 to Carl Munt in an epic Senate race, okay. took an yeah. appointment from young President Kennedy, who he was very close to. McGovern mm-hmm. and the Kennedys were very tight. Mm-hmm. And Kennedy appointed him head of Food for Peace, which was perfect for McGovern oh, as yeah. an advocate of farm programs and food programs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he quickly returns to South Dakota, enters the race, and wins by 500 votes in a race wow. against... Joe Bottom. Now, he probably would not have returned to South Dakota if not for that narrow window of opportunity. And he would not have become a senator and he would not have gone on to become a presidential nominee. And that 62 election was the one that immediately followed the Cuban Missile Crisis. So Mm. you generally see the incumbent party lose seats in the midterm. And I think that was an exception to that. And then here McGovern wins by 500 votes. So. Very narrow set of circumstances. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think this makes a point. Did we, Kennedy come out and campaign for him? No, he did not. Kennedy okay. campaigned for him in 1960, and Kennedy, after leaving the national plowing contest in Mitchell and walking back to his airplane with brother Bobby, yeah. said to Bobby, 
Oof, we shouldn't have done that. We just cost that guy a Senate seat. Oh. Because <laughs> the reaction was so bad. Okay. And Kennedy did very poorly against Nixon in 1960. So in 1962, they kept Kennedy out because yeah. he was not seen as— It would not have been a con- constructive— Although, really. as Tony says, it was a little bit different because the yeah. Cuban crisis yeah. um, prevented was, the normal midterm losses. That was mid-October, so that the election was oh, right. practically on them by the time that happened. Right. right. I think this makes a good point. We are talking in very broad strokes about the political culture of South Dakota. Right. You know, the kind of uh, atmosphere that politics takes place in. Right. Those are very important things in this in this setting, mm-hmm. the the place where the battles take place. Very important to understand that. But ultimately, this does come down to humans making human decisions yeah. and a lot of you know, right. very practical events happening, like Francis Case suddenly dying, right. and the Republicans maybe not handling that very well. And so it does come down to yeah, human agency, individuals. Mm-hmm. As as Professor Miller would have told us in our methods class, human agency matters a lot. Um, speaking of uh, cult- wider culture and so forth, Marshall Damgard's got this great chapter about political nobodies out of political nowhere, yeah, and goes through the kind of list of these people that. Certainly are not, you know, predestined or preordained. And, and uh, how, how did that chapter come about? Or um, what, what's, what's the heartbeat of that chapter? Well, I was talking to Marshall about this and just making the point that in a lot of states and a lot of countries, a lot of political cultures, you know, through time, there are dynasties. We yeah. were just talking about the Kennedys. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Kennedys in Massachusetts for 60, 70 years – I mean, that name was golden, and you would, I mean, I think the dream has finally faded away. Mm-hmm. The mystique is finally gone. But for a long time, if you ran as Kennedy, you were going to win in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. There is this kind of dynastic politics that operates in other places. Uh, it's not as prominent here. I think in South Dakota, there's a lot of political stories about people who just worked hard, mm-hmm. were ambitious, uh, hit the uh, hit the speaking circuit, knocked on doors, and climbed their way to the top of politics. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes our our state a lot different. If you work hard, you can effectively get to the top of the political mm-hmm. ladder in South Dakota. Where you know, think about a state like California with forty million people, and you got to have a lot of money, and mm-hmm. you got to be well known. It's very hard mm-hmm. to become a senator from. Uh, from California, but in places like South Dakota, That's right. it's very possible. Well, you know, really, there's, there's a chapter in our book about George Mickelson, right? George S. Mickelson, which was written by it's a, it's a little unusual uh, for this series. It was written by Paul Wilson, who's a political consultant who consulted on Mickelson's campaign in 1986. So it's more of a firsthand account rather yeah. than a historian. And I know Paul because he did a little work for Governor Dugard's first campaign too. But mm-hmm. uh, George Mickelson, you might say, is a counterexample to that because his dad had been the governor and had mm-hmm. been a federal judge, and, well, didn't this guy get elected because of who his dad was? If you know that story or if you read Paul, Paul's article, that's not really true at all. I right. mean, he really did not find that his dad's name or legacy was much of an advantage, and he entered that 1986 race as a big underdog, underdog and yeah. an afterthought, and campaigned for more than a year and worked very hard into door-to-door and really pounded the pavement and mm-hmm. uh, slipped by Clint Roberts in that 
primary by just a very narrow margin. But Paul kind of tells that story that yeah. even with a guy who you'd think has the dynasty behind him, he really didn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an advantage. Well, yeah, I think the Wilson and the Damgard article um, kind of dovetailed nicely in that right. issue because they demonstrated even the person with the arguably a dynastic name still has to get out there and knock on doors and, and have a great campaign team. Paul Wilson's a uh, pretty clear, uh, smart guy. And um, Adams, was that the campaign manager? Colonel Adams. Colonel Adams, Colonel yeah. Adams right? Colonel Made Dwayne the trains Adams. run on time. Uh, Wilson mm-hmm. Wilson says, uh, well, told me on a previous podcast where he talked about him. He said, I'd never worked for a campaign before that closed the doors at 5 o'clock every day because our stuff was done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think this speaks to something in the political culture, though, a kind of egalitarian streak mm-hmm. or an anti-big shot streak. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe a slightly populist. Yeah, uh, it's a yeah. populist element. I remember Bill yeah. Janklow used to say, you know, I don't really care about those guys at the country club. You know, I want to know what the guys at the local gas station are saying. Mm-hmm. You know, he he um, he didn't really care for the kind of landed or wealthy aristocracy, and mm-hmm. he kind of wanted to make it on his own. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of his approach to politics. Um, and I think it actually would probably be a liability in many cases if you were out there running as the heir to the throne, so to speak, as the son of a prominent person, I don't know. Yeah. So it's part of the political culture here. That's mm-hmm. that's probably not as prominent in other parts of the country. The the last chapter, Michael Card is takes takes a different approach. There's it's kind of a policy wonky chapter on budgets and so forth. But mm-hmm. the the long noted expression that a, that a budget is the ultimate expression of political priorities. Um, and Tony, you've had some uh, experience pushing budgets through the yep. legislature and so forth. Would you? What do you, uh, you? Did you have a chance to read Mike's? I did, uh, I did, I did. I, and uh, I enjoyed it. You know, he uh, he talks about the the budget process as it is currently, but he also really talks about uh, the history of South Dakota's revenue structure and the mm-hmm. fact that uh, you know at one time we relied on. A state property tax levy, and we had a st- we actually had a state income tax right. uh, for some period of time in the in the 30s, and then you know when the Great Depression hits and Tom Barry is scrambling for cash, they had the ore tax where they just nailed the home state mine really hard for money and oh you know, or uh, O-R-E yeah yes yeah like iron ore like yeah. gold you know yeah. the ore tax yeah and that was I think. That was a major source of revenue for the state at one time. Okay. It, was a, it was a large portion of our revenue. Uh, when Prohibition ended, they called a special session to quickly legalize beer so we could sell that and tax it. And tax that was it. another major yeah. move. Yeah. And then how that, uh, when we get into the 40s, when the parties are more conservative, they do away with the income tax and kind of how uh, some of these things have evolved in the 70s, the personal right. property tax, where you used to have to list how many TVs you had and how many, oh you know. My gosh. They call that the liar's tax because there was really no, <laughs> no, no way to enforce no ability it. to audit it. Right. Uh, but that was something that uh, Knipe and Woolman and then ultimately Janklo got done was getting rid of the personal property tax and but you know but all the, the way through to the present. Yeah. But yeah, and the and the personal income tax didn't come back. No, despite Knipe's very close vote in yeah, so seventy two, seventy three. Yeah, the closest vote. But he uh, he tried that all eight years he was governor. Mm-hmm. Even once the Republicans had won the legislature back, and it clearly wasn't going to pass, he put in an income tax every year. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, it's a very good chapter about how the kind of it, revenues are a part of the budget uh, process. Mm -hmm. Certainly, a big part of it. They're they're the ones that provide the capacity for the whole thing. And and uh, when folks are uh, emailing their legislator or or speaking to the governor as, as uh, he or she campaigns around the state and so forth, they often say, "Well, such and such needs more money." But then, of course, the the comeback is, well, what are you going to cut? Because we have mm -hmm. a mandate to balance the right. budget. And, uh, there's lots of good ideas. And even a Democratic governor will veto a balance that's a budget that's not balanced, as Bulow has that's right. instructed us. So, Ben, can I make one more uh, observation sure. about agrarian conservatism? Sure, let's wrap up with that. We were talking about this chapter um, about George Mickelson and... There's a very good story that I think represents this matter of agrarian conservatism very well, mm -hmm. where the state tends to be a Republican, mm -hmm. but if there are issues related to a farm crisis or low farm prices or whatever, the Democrats have an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1986, when George Mickelson was trying to become governor, he had been serving as a lawyer in Brookings. And so he was kind of known as a fancy big city lawyer guy mm -hmm. well, who had weak credentials when it came to farming. His dad was a federal judge and he graduated from Washington High School in Sioux Falls. I mean, he was not a, not a rural guy. Yeah. So as a uh, aspiring governor and um, as a political operative like Paul Wilson is mm -hmm. looking at these issues, they have to figure out a way for him to build up his bona fides on farm issues. Mm -hmm. And what they landed on was an ad where George Mickelson would be out uh, in a barn during calving season and actually pulling the calf out of a, a, a cow mm -hmm. and uh, filming it all and putting it on TV. Right. And that's that helped a lot. It right. put him over the top. It was a close election. Yeah. And remember, 1986 is the depth of the farm crisis. Right, right. And he's running against an actual farmer mm -hmm. in uh, Lars Herseth. Yeah. And Lars was trying to capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. So it was a close election for a governor, which mm -hmm. they often aren't in South Dakota. Right. Yeah, and you know, the 80s farm crisis was really, John mentioned this earlier, but in every other period prior to that in South Dakota history, when you had a farm crisis... 1890s, 1920s, and 30s, 1950s, then that's when the Republicans would lose the governor's office. Hmm. 1980s were the first time they didn't. Okay. Where, I mean, if you'd have been a student of South Dakota history in the 80s, you'd have said, oh, Lars Herseth is going to win this deal in 86. This is lined up for him. Yeah. And the fact that it didn't happen, I wrote this, I wrote an article in volume two of the Plains Political oh, right. Tradition about right. South Dakota governors more generally. And mm -hmm. that was a point I made there is that kind of an inflection point in South Dakota history a little that we'd maybe urbanized enough that the ag economy didn't determine the, the result okay. like it would have. Right. You know, if that if it had been Mickelson versus Herseth in the in 58 82. election or something, oh, yeah. you know, that's when Ralph Herseth got elected governor was right. in 58. Right. And okay. you probably would have seen the Democrats win that. I mean, yeah. Mickelson's margin of victory was almost entirely in Minnehaha and Pennington County. Mm-hmm. And this, again, comes down to the specifics of what happened right. and the particular mm -hmm. characters involved. I mean, what if Paul Wilson and George Mickelson had not come up with that idea for that right. ad right. to boost his standing in farm country? Mm -hmm. Maybe he wouldn't have won. Right. But again, these individual small-scale decisions have a big impact. Right. 
Well, John, Tony, thanks very much for joining us on History 605. It's been a great discussion. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Ben. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.